Verulam Sports. Hello again and welcome to Verulam Sport Podcasting. This is Tony Rice and this is, I think, a very important, very exciting podcast tonight. Each and every single Premiership weekend, indeed most sporting weekends, I think quite rightly, the players take a knee. It's lots of news in the air at this time. Sadly, racism hasn't gone away, may never do so. My humble opinion is, it's actually through educating ourselves about the important history and interconnections uh, that we all share commonly, that we will maybe one day move beyond this. And two fantastic authors of a really compelling read, Footballers Black Pioneers, uh, Bill Hearn and David Gleave are with me tonight. David, welcome to Verum Sports. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. It's good to be on. And I very much echo your comments about education, by the way. I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Certainly, we'll build on it. And Bill Hearn also, welcome to Verum Sports. How are you both doing? I'm good, Tony. Thanks for having us. Brilliant stuff. Well, again, we'll begin as uh, I began. Sadly, the context of this time, I mean, um, Marcus Rashford has just done so many great works recently, being viciously trolled. Uh, Again, players quite rightly is uh, taking a stand at this moment in time. Um, Again, my opinion is these movements are important, but it is the educational process, I think, which will empower us all. And I think that that is absolutely key to the great stories that you weave in this fantastic work. Just first and foremost, give us an idea of how this came together. What was the thought process? And if I could ask Bill for you to kind of begin uh, the story of your story. Okay, Tony. Well, a lot of people have said that uh, the book is perfect timing, uh, given the situation that you've just described. But actually, we started this book in 2016. It's been four years in the making. And when we started in 2016, things seemed to have got better. Uh, Racism hadn't really uh, reared its head for for a little while. But as we've spoken to players over the last four years, what they've said was that, you know, it had never really gone away. It was still there underlying. And it didn't take very much to release it. And, And we're in a position now, as you've just described, where some of the behaviour is absolutely despicable. Um, I think the big difference nowadays is that the players do get some support, as you mentioned, taking the knee and so on. Because when we spoke to players from the 70s, Viv Anderson is a good example. I said to Viv, what would have happened if you'd walked off? People were throwing fruit at him, making mm. monkey noises. I said, what if you'd walked off? And he said, Bill, if I'd walked off, I would have been unemployed. Mm. They, would have, they would have put somebody else in my place, and I would have been looking for a job elsewhere. So, um, you know, things have um, probably changed for the worse in the last four years, uh, sadly. Um, I mean, I'll let David come in here now because I think he's got um, quite a lot to say about the educational side of it. Yeah, David, please uh, elaborate because, again, it is these histories that I think remind us of the interconnections and the important role of black footballers. And I think, Bill, that's really critical. Never must we forget progress has been made. But again, David, if you could pick up here and just tell us just how critically education is to us all as we look to uh, empower ourselves and become maybe more socially aware. Uh, well, I'm sure Bill will agree me, with me that we started out to write a book uh, of 
stories for football fans, really. Uh, and it was going to be a dip in, dip out. You'd look at your chapter on your team uh, and perhaps look at one or two others that interested you. But it wouldn't be a book you would read from cover to cover. I think as we wrote it and as we researched the stories, we became aware that we were ac accidentally almost writing a book of uh, social history and a book of the black British experience for the last 120 or so years. Uh, and the stories do illustrate, you know, different aspects of the, what it's like to be black and British, uh, going right back to the start of the Football League in uh, 1888. So, you know, you've got people, I think Bill might allude to this later, we've got people who were being abused. Uh, you know, Walter Tull was famously very heavily abused in a match at Bristol City. Uh, and I think if Walter Tull sat down in a room today with Marcus Rashford and they had a chat, uh, I think they'd find that their experiences are very, very similar. Uh, yeah, the method of delivering the bile has changed, but the poison is exactly the same. And you'd like to think that over the last 120 years we had made some progress, but I think it's easy to exaggerate the process we have made. It, it appeared, as, as we've both said, to get a bit better for a number of years, but it didn't take much to unleash it again. And I think from 2016 onwards, uh, it has definitely been on the rise. There's no question about that. And that's my point, really, because racism, along with any form of prejudice, is essentially uh, a societal and a cultural matter. And therefore, as long as there is society and culture, to certain degrees, these will exist. And as a consequence, I'm not naive, there is no magic wand. But I am a believer that the more people are enabled to learn about the socio-political historical context here in a sporting framework, the stronger the likelihood of us building longer term momentum in a positive sense. That's my, my attitude. That's my belief. And that's why I absolutely believe that this book, Footballers Black Pioneers, is utterly critical. Um, David, just bringing, uh, sorry, Bill, bringing you back in here, um, would like to get an idea of your process collaborating alongside David, because it is a wonderful work, not only touching on those socio-political matters, but capturing the story of each of the first black players from all 96 clubs. This must have been a labor of love. So much research must have gone into it. Talk to me a little bit about the process that you guys worked together to achieve this incredibly powerful book. Yeah, I mean, when we started, we simply wanted to identify the names, really, of the first black players at the, at the league clubs. But as we delved into the subject matter, we found that each individual player had a completely unique and fascinating story to tell. So it became almost 92 short stories. Um, how do we go about it? Well, certainly we, we tested everything to destruction because we found there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, that can be for a lot of factors. Some of the players exaggerated their success, which I guess is quite tempting to do. Um, some of them couldn't remember. Viv Anderson couldn't remember his debut. He played 700 games, you know, so it's quite difficult um, to remember everything. Um, we had um, players like Steve McCorney, who probably exaggerated his achievements for bad motives. Uh, to get jobs and so on, and to increase his uh, profile unnecessarily or unfairly. Um, Lindy Delapena, who exaggerated his achievements, you know, he, ne he never scored a straightforward goal, it was always a 20-yard volley. So, um, I mean, there's one famous one where um, 
there's an urban myth that Laurie Cunningham scored at Millwall in the last minute. And we, we've checked every record going and, and that simply didn't happen. It was an urban myth. Um, so these people are not telling lies, but we wanted to get the truth out there because, as I said, there's a lot of misinformation. Uh, we interviewed players, we interviewed families, because, of course, a lot of the players are dead now. We examined archives. I actually went to Barbados to interview Roland Butcher, who was the first black player at Stevenage. That was probably the, uh, the most pleasant part of the, uh, of the four years' research. Um, we have birth certificates, death certificates, marriage certificates that are almost as high as a mountain. Um, so, yeah, we, we really, really delved into this and found a lot of fascinating stories because the players were all different. Uh, what they did have in common was they were the first, and that can be quite a lonely position. You know, can you imagine being the only black person in the, in the club? In some cases, probably one of the few black people in the entire town or city. So it was, it was a lonely beginning, and we want to make sure that the players that come along now realise what those predecessors went through and make absolutely certain we never go back to those days ever again. Uh, you know, because they're, you know, they're, they're standing on the shoulders of giants, as it were. I've had the privilege on a couple of occasions of interviewing Paul Cannonville, uh, Chelsea's first black player. Again, uh, will be, I think, profiled in, in the book. Um, and again, some of these stories of vitriol from his own fans was absolutely horrific. And I uh, just want to take a moment to extend thoughts and prayers to Paul and family at this time. Uh, and just want to say get well soon. Um, David, just introducing you back there. Uh, a name to conjure with, of course, is Viv Anderson. Again, brilliant four words. Uh, and he makes that very same point, doesn't he? That uh, whilst, of course, the first player to, uh, a black player to represent England, very much a role model, a trailblazer, but only made possible by the amazing efforts uh, of all so many that came before him. Talk to me briefly, David, about... Uh, how you got the coup of uh, Viv Anderson to, to be writing the foreword. Uh, well, I think Bill's claimed the credit for that. Um, but I mean, before we talk about that, I mean, I want to just pick up on the Viv Anderson story because um, we've talked a bit about the, the way in which these stories are educational. And the story of Viv Anderson and the Anderson family, I think is an absolutely classic um, story of the Windrush generation. Um, you talked about uh, the number of people who made if success possible, he first and foremost amongst that, of course, were his parents, um, Audley and Muriel, who came from Jamaica in 1954 and 55, at a time um, when Britain was very inhospitable. I mean, two years, around about the time of Viv's second birthday, uh, there was a race riot in Nottingham where uh, the Audleys, uh, the Andersons have settled. Uh, and so you, you can only begin to imagine what their what Viv's parents must have felt like having traveled thousands of miles for what they thought would be a better future, uh, only to find themselves in a situation where you know, people, people were fighting uh, on the streets of Nottingham. Um, and I mean, it was so bad that the Nottingham Evening Paper described it as being like an abattoir. There was so much blood. Unfortunately, nobody got killed that night, but uh, you know, a number of people were hospitalized. So uh, this, the Anderson story sums up so many aspects of Windrush Generation. The, the, the hope and aspiration for the parents who came, the hostility that they faced, uh, the resilience that they showed in overcoming the obstacles that were placed in their path. I mean, Viv Anderson's mother 
uh, was a fully trained teacher in Jamaica. But when she got to England and applied for teacher's job, she was told her qualifications didn't count for anything. And although she did get a job in a school, eventually it was as a, as a dinner lady, not as a teacher. Uh, and I think very much to her credit that she retrained as a nurse and worked in the NHS for many years. Uh, and that too is fairly typical of the story of that generation from the Caribbean. <clears throat> they, were, they were rejected time and time again. I mean, I've interviewed nurses who were fully trained nurses in the Caribbean, but were made to train again when they came to England. So that, the hostility, the resilience, the overcoming of obstacles, and you can only imagine the pride that, all, uh, that Viv's parents must have felt uh, when Viv stepped out onto that Wembley pitch in November you know, 1978. It's kind of vindicated the struggles that they've had. It's, it's a very moving story, and it's really, really good material for a teacher. I mean, this is, teach, you know, national, the national curriculum does cover migration, that's one of the themes of the national curriculum. And you can't have a better story to illustrate some of the issues that are, is raised by migration than looking at the story of the Anderson family. It's such a great little snapshot into some of the great work that this fantastic book, Footballers, Black Pioneers, the story of the first black player to represent the 92 league clubs possesses. Um, but just quickly coming back again to Bill on Viv Anderson, stepping slightly away from your great work into a different art form. Um, I was uh, unable to get out of my head that lovely Calypso uh, tune that you kindly shared. Um, just put us in the picture of exactly what I'm referring to. Yeah, well, Viv had been so good to us. He's given his time. He wrote a forward for the book and we wanted to give him something back. And we're very good friends with uh, arguably Britain's greatest Calypsonian, Alex the Great, Alex the Great. And we asked Alex if he might have time or mind writing a Calypso in honour of Viv. And Alex is an incredibly talented man. He managed to put a Calypso together that told Viv's story right from Audley and Myrtle coming across here, right through to the International Cup, becoming manager. Um, so, you know, it's a great Calypso, absolutely brilliant. Viv loves it, which is obviously important. He provides lots of brilliant photographs to accompany the, uh, the Calypso. And people can watch it on YouTube. It's there if you just go into YouTube and either do Viv Anderson or Alex de Great. Um, and I guarantee once you listen to it, you will not be able to stop humming it for the rest of the day. Uh, so we're really grateful to Alex, but it was a present to Viv, really, to thank him for his help and support. What I really, uh, what I really value about that, again, culturally speaking, if we think about how much um, the, uh, the, the, the black diaspora has enriched our society, um, not just the great, I would use the word, artists on the pitch, but the great artists uh, in the Calypso uh, world, uh, reggae, um, dub poetry, and all so many others, I think that our society has been enhanced massively by the kind of uh, infusion of different other cultures, which again, for my money, is precisely where I come back 360 to how critical education is to our growth and our recognition of exactly all these key things. Um, nevertheless, though, keeping it back now to this great work of art and uh, you know would love to kind of delve and dissect each and every single person but I would encourage everybody to do that when they get the book but I just want to focus in on briefly if we could 
um, the first black player from Watford, because uh, here in Hertfordshire, we speak to um, the Watford guys quite regularly. And uh, obviously, they were our nearest Premier League club and battling back, hopefully, to the Premier League. Um, Tony Collins, I think, recently uh, deceased. So obviously, sending thoughts and prayers to his family. Um, but David, if you could... Um, quite a massively influential guy. Uh, I think at first a pioneer for multiple clubs. Just uh, give us a bit of a flavour, a souchance of the Tony Collins story. Um, well, I think Tony's interesting because um, I think there are a lot of people who think that Black Britain's black history starts with the arrival of the Empire Windrush and nothing could be further from the truth, really. And Tony Collins' story does illustrate that because he was born in London in, I think it was 1920. Uh, three or four, some, somewhere around about then. Um, and his, he, he, he was um, brought up by his grandparents, actually, because his mother was a single parent, a teenager, who couldn't actually keep, bring him up herself. Um, so he had quite a tough beginning, and then there's no question that his grandparents um, experienced quite a lot of racism. I think anybody wheeling around a pram with a mixed heritage child in it in those days was bound to come in for a fair amount of stick. Um, but Tony, to be fair to him, I think has never in his life uh, played the race card. He's always tended to rise above that, more to his, uh, very much to his credit. Um, but he served in, in, the, in the British Army during the Second World War. Uh, and it was when he came back from the war that he was then signed up initially by Sheffield Wednesday, who he didn't play a league game for. He moved to York, who he did play a league game for. From there, he moved to Watford. Uh, and he had three seasons at Watford, three pretty successful seasons. And while he was at Watford, he was watched by Walter Winterbottom, who was the England manager at the time. And I think they were real. So, so again, we're talking Viv Anderson, you know, maybe uh, 20 odd or nearly 30 odd years before. Uh, again, there was possibilities of, I guess, again, just showcasing uh, the lag that uh, was needed or was, was the way it was before that. Uh, phenomenal day but yeah please continue on yeah well uh, Bill perhaps later will have time to talk about uh, an England international who might have been in the 1920s but wasn't um, for various reasons uh, but anyway Tony was on the verge of a, an England cap maybe uh, and I don't think we'll ever know why he didn't get it I mean he was playing in what was then the third division division three south so he wasn't playing at a very senior level but there were rumours that he was being scouted by a big club. I think Bill's team, Sunderland, were looking at him. But Watford put a price on his head that uh, put people off. Uh, and so he never did get his move to a big club that perhaps he deserved. Um, so he, he, from Watford, he then moved to Norwich. He moved to where he spent two seasons. He spent two seasons at Torquay. He came back to Watford. And interestingly, um, he played 10 games for Watford in the same team as another black player called Roy Brown. Uh, and we think that's the first example ever of two black players appearing in the same, the same team. So that's a real first for Watford there. Uh, it was after, after leaving Watford, he went to my team, Crystal Palace, where he played for a couple of seasons. And at the end of his career, he moved to Rochdale as a player. Uh, and then an opportunity came up, a vacancy came up for the manager job at Rochdale. And he was encouraged to apply for it. And he, therefore, he became the first ever black manager when he took over at Rochdale. And so, even now, that is, I would suggest, a big issue within our game. Uh, I know it's something that the FA are looking to address. I don't have the answers. But goodness me, back in 1960, we're talking pioneers. This was, uh, you know, first man on the moon type pioneer, I would imagine. Goodness me. 
Tony Collins was absolutely, I think, one of the most important pioneers in the book. I mean, to be, he, he appears in um, three chapters in the book because at the moment, York and Torquay are not in the league. However, he was the first black player at five clubs. Um, and I don't think there's anybody in the book can match that. I mean, Lindy De La Pena was first black player, I think, at four league clubs. Uh, but but uh, Tony Collins managed five. Uh, and to be the first black manager as well, and he went on as well after after he left Rochdale after a pretty, pretty successful time at Rochdale by their standards. He then went on. Uh, he was assistant manager at Bristol City, uh, and then he was headhunted by Don Revy at Leeds, uh, and he was chief scout at Leeds for several years. Don Revy took him to England as part of the England setup, so he was chief scout for Don Revy during the England years, uh, and then he went to Manchester United where he worked for uh, Ron Atkinson and Axelrod Ferguson. This is a man who's been around and he really does deserve to be much better remembered than he is. He's, he's a very big name in black British football history and we should be singing his achievements from the, from the hilltops. Uh, and as you say, sadly, he died only a few days ago. So, but at, the, at the age of 94. A jolly good innings and what an exciting, thrilling, pioneering life. Thoughts and prayers to the family and loved ones of this great, great man. Um, Bill, just want to bring you back then uh, and uh, I'd like you to pick up the baton there with mm -hmm. going back, way back when, into the 20s. Tell me the story of this um, could have been an England player uh, in that early, um, you know, 1920s era. Yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm glad that we documented Tony's story before he passed uh, because the, one of the worries we had about black football history was that these players would disappear and be lost to history forever. So, you know, education's really important. And Viv Anderson, only last year, said he'd never heard of a man called Jack Leslie. Never heard of him. And yet Jack Leslie is the person you're referring to back in the 1920s who almost played for England. Now, people should know his story. They should, under, you know, it should be in part of the education. Jack um, had a Jamaican father. He was very dark skinned. He had a white mother and he played for Plymouth Argyle in the 1920s. He's a very, very good player indeed. He was actually the first black player to become a club captain uh, because there was a, a prejudice really that black people weren't leaders and you got that in the army if, if you remember world war one black soldiers were not allowed to be officers i mean walter Tull broke that uh, broke that mold but by and large you could not be an officer if you were black and that kind of went through to football because there were no black captains until jack leslie came along and it was a long time before the next one anyway jack was picked for england in 1925 he was a travelling reserve to go to, the, uh, to go to Northern Ireland with the England squad. And two or three weeks later, when the squad travelled, Jack wasn't in the, in the touring team. Uh, he'd suddenly disappeared. Now, no one's had a, a definitive answer as to why he was suddenly dropped. But really, it can only be the colour of his skin because he was fit. He wasn't suspended. He played for Plymouth on the very same afternoon that England played at Northern Ireland. And Jack himself said, you know, it's because they found out that my daddy was from Jamaica. My daddy was black. Um, and, and, you know, as I say, it's hard to think of any other reasons. So we do believe that Jack Leslie was the first black player to be picked for England. But before he could actually get on the field, he was dropped because of the colour of his skin. And it was over 50 years before Viv Anderson got that, uh, that achievement. I mean, since Viv... 
there've been a hundred with the hundredth black player played for England uh, last last year, uh, Reese James. And you know, so you've you've jumped from one in nineteen seventy eight <laughs> to a hundred in twenty twenty, and yet that improvement is not reflected in the managerial field. We had two black managers in nineteen ninety three. One of them was Viv, and now we've probably got three or four really. It's, it just it defies logic, doesn't it? You know, you can't have thirty three percent of players non-white and then when it jumps to managerial level it's probably like one percent or something it's uh it is certainly a concern now i'm briefly and we can talk about this all day so just just want to keep this relatively brief i'm against any form of prejudice uh, and discrimination so just on that philosophical idealistic slant i'm kind of against what's called positive discrimination However, I'd like briefly to get your impression, given that the dramatic disproportionate shifts on the number of uh, black players versus the disproportionate number of managers, should we consider almost like they've adopted in the state what they refer to as the uh, Rooney rule, not remember the name Wayne Rooney, um, but basically it means that they're has to be at least one player of um, black or ethnic minority interviewed, at the very least given an opportunity to be interviewed for a head coaching role in the NFL when uh, a coaching vacancy comes up. Again, my personal stance is I'm against it philosophically, but I do recognize something needs to be done and I don't have the solutions. Um, David, quickly, what's your take here? And what do you think, I know the FA are doing so much, but what do you think is a good move to help cultivate this step from the co uh, playing environment onto the managerial and the coaching uh, regimes? Okay, well, interesting. I mean, Tony Collins did express views on this. We weren't able to meet Tony, but we were able via his daughter to exchange emails with him and have a correspondence with him. Uh, and we did raise that question with him. Uh, and he said he like you he said there's no way a, a black person or any person should be given the job simply because they're black uh, positive discrimination in that sense but what he did say was that he, he did support the idea of having the Rooney rule because all the Rooney rule does is say somebody has to be on the sh can on the list of candidates who get an interview somebody ha somebody of from an ethnic minority has to have a shot at the job doesn't mean they're going to get it um uh, and you know anything could happen in an interview and you could still have lots of prejudice coming out of the interview but at least they're in the room and have a chance to impress the people making the selection so uh, i think i think it's very hard behind it hard to find anybody who said there should be positive discrimination in the sense that black people should get a job in preference to a white person even if they're not as good I don't think anybody's suggesting that but what people are suggesting is that black people should have a chance and the Rooney rule would achieve that so I I personally would agree that the Rooney rule uh, should should be brought in mm. you know again it's a fascinating conversation and I circle back to my own belief which is, is through the process of education that we will get as close as we ever possibly might to some form of bona fide equality and uh, justness in our world. And therefore I embrace 
the wonderful opportunity that we've got not only to educate ourselves but also to have a really good read learning about the anecdotes the stories the social context of the important role that these wonderful black pioneers have played in your wonderful work footballers black pioneers which is the stories of the first black players to represent all of the 92 league clubs bill it's out now how on earth can we get access to this? How on earth can we enrich our lives and educate ourselves and also have a jolly good read simply on that level? Okay, well, it's easy to obtain. Uh, you could get it from Amazon if you choose. Um, you can get it from Waterstones, any good bookseller. You might need to order it. Uh, or you can get it from our, our publisher. Publisher is Conquer Editions. That's C-O-N-K-E-R, Editions. Um, so, yeah, it's freely available. Um, seems to be doing quite well people we get lots of good reviews people are enjoying it which is the main thing we enjoyed writing it uh so yes it's uh it's out and about and uh i hope people enjoy it absolutely and i'll tell you it's very powerful uh very entertaining and i think it's a, a really crucial crucial uh, work that you guys have worked diligently to produce it's incredible work of entertaining history and if you like your entertaining history served up with a, a bit of football context <laughs> you're on for a winner david once again please remind us of the best ways that we can get access to this phenomenal work um well if you don't mind using amazon then that's the easiest and cheapest way of getting a hold of it um but as bill said any any good bookshop should be able to order it for you you can get it from the a publish, publisher's uh, website as well. There's one final comment I want to make on this subject, and it really that is that nobody, nobody is born racist. You are taught racism, you learn racism. And if it's a learned behavior, it can be unlearned. It's gonna be very hard work to unlearn all of that racism that some people have learned, but that's the only way you're actually gonna change things. You know, you can kick people who make racist comments off Twitter and Facebook or whatever, but they're still racists. Uh, you've actually got to change them from being racist. And that is only done through education. Absolutely. Um, a, a, a much smarter, more powerful man than I, I think his name is Nelson Mandela, made that very same point. Uh, for me, this has been a privilege and indeed an honour to enjoy your company. I wish you every continued success with um, this uh, process and the, I'm sure it is already proving to be a, a real successful uh, project that I know you put your heart and soul into. Um, Bill, in closing, is there anything else that you'd like to, to raise or draw our attention to at all? No, I think just going back to that management issue, Every player I interviewed <clears throat> had a comment to make on it. And the most common one, apart from the Rooney Rule, they all felt the Rooney Rule was important as long as it wasn't just paid lip service, was that until people upstairs, they referred to upstairs as the directors, the owners and so on, until the people upstairs look like the people, you know, the black people, um, then it, nothing's going to happen because people tend to recruit in their own image. They feel comfortable with people that are like them. And if you look around the Football League, there aren't really, I think there are one or two black directors, probably no black owners. So until that changes, it's going to be difficult to, to break that particular mould. I think it's a very vital point. I'm a naive idealist, gentlemen. I live in hope. Uh, and But one thing I am rather sure of is that uh, just a good read of this great work will educate us and also entertain us. And I tell you what, 
those two things just intrinsically are never, ever a bad thing. It's been awesome to enjoy your company. As I say, I wish you every continued success and happiness. Um, above all, keep well, keep safe. And I look forward to speaking again in the near future, but I'm sure you'll collaborate and continue to create exciting projects. Thank you once again for your time, gentlemen. Thanks, Tony. Thank you, Tony.